0: Last week's program, we talked about an interesting story going on about a proposal to bring Hollywood to Dixon. Apparently, a smooth-talking, self-described entertainment executive named Carissa Carpenter has got the good people in Dixon thinking that, uh, well, Robert De Niro, Nicole Kidman, why, they're sure to be stopping into the milk farm sometime soon. The Bee's extensive piece by Margie Lundstrom and Sam Stanton documented... uh, this whole tale in some rather amusing detail last week, including such things as the fact that Carpenter has yet to pay the city of Dixon a $100,000 deposit she guaranteed last year to cover time devoted by city staff to work on her project. Dixon city manager said last April he was sure the money was going to show up any time. I mean, this woman's apparently spun quite a tale. People in Dixon are quoted saying things like, well, if we do happen to run across Tom Cruise in town, we'd simply say... Good morning, sir, and welcome to Dixon. Our favorite part of this tale was the quote of Angelo Sacopoulos, whom the bee described as one of the region's most influential developers, saying he was very impressed with this woman. She's the real deal, he said. Which, of course, got us thinking about some of Angelo Sacopoulos' other real deals. He's currently involved in an effort to build on the former Centrage site, which you've probably seen if you've driven on Business 80, the capital city freeway. It's a wonderful stretch of open land uh, filled with vernal pools, the former site of an orchard, which is now being eyed by Phil Angelides acting for Mr. Socopoulos, as he so often does, to convince Sacramento that this infill project would be a swell idea. I should note by way of disclosure that I live about mm, a half block from the proposed new entrance they plan to punch through the railroad berm to access 400 high density homes to be placed on this site. About 25 years ago, a Florida millionaire named James Lanan proposed to put 34 story office towers on this site, which got the entire local populace up in arms and this was successfully fought. We would note that this plan, in my humble opinion, would have a catastrophically bad effect on my neighborhood and my street and is raising all kinds of questions. Locally, about what this would do to flood control, since since this area is considered part of the flood control uh, region off the American River. Apparently, Phil Angelides has promised they'll put floodgates and they'll boy they'll, they'll drop those if there's any issues of flood. I'm fully confident that he would drop floodgates and isolate all the people that's that have bought homes from him in that area to protect the rest of the neighborhood. Just as I'm sure that he would. Um, Get around to constructing uh, some rail lines to connect his last development down in Laguna. Now, on a weekly basis, when I come to do this radio program, I have to maneuver from I 80 to transition from the northernmost lane to the southernmost and go cross traffic for all those people that are trying to go from left to right to get off to go down I 5 down to Laguna. The reason there's such a huge crush of traffic, which is very dangerous, is that. There is no light rail going down there, even though Mr. Angelides promised the Sacramento area that he'd make sure that that was built. So excuse me for having some uh, reservations about taking promises made about this new property at face value. Notes to be the property is owned by a partnership controlled by Angelo K. Sacopoulos, who developed large portions of suburban Sacramento, including much of Elk Grove, Natomas, Folsom, and Roseville. Cocopolos for decades has been a political backer and patron of Angelides who formerly ran Socopolos' AKT development. Angelides and Cocopolos were partners in creating Elk Grove's Laguna West neighborhood, which drew attention for its attempt for its attempt to incorporate urban style features such, such as street trees and nearby stores into a suburban environment. Well, ear to the ground, I just found out that the proposed entryway through Lanat Street has been tossed aside in favor of punching through the Canary Business Park a half block from my house because, well, it was going to be more expensive to get all the easements and things they needed from the Lynette location. So now they're going to punch an underpass right by my house and apparently put up a big four-way stoplight. Just the thing to perk up a shady, pedestrian-friendly East Sacramento environment, wouldn't you say? And here's something for any investigative journalists that might be listening to this program, and I hope some are, could you check out the story that I've heard from a source that I trust, that Angelo Sakopoulos is so good at getting things done the way he wants that, well, things just go his way. I mean, for example, if you're going to build development, it has to be signed off on and how the light poles are connected and how the uh, the streets are graded and how they're hooked up to sewage lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's what we expect a, a county to do. But generally, you expect them to do such inspections and sign-offs about the time the project is nearing completion or certainly at least a long time after it's started as opposed to maybe getting it signed off on before any Shovel's been put into the ground, which is what I have heard happened. Since I believe my sources on this to be reliable, I do think it's worth running down this rumor. It'd be nice to find out that there's no truth to it. But then again, of course, if there is some truth to it, why that would be even more interesting. I can tell you that what's at stake for me is a degradation of my environment so severe that I will move if this goes through, which makes me very sad to think about. Of course, there's a lot of political clout in East Sacramento, and not everybody's too crazy about this idea, and we're going to have to see what spirited civic interest will do to perhaps alter or to perhaps halt this project. People have told me that if Socapolis wants something, it's a done deal. I don't know. We'll have to see. I do remember a few years back when the B published a list of uh, how much all the candidates had gotten for their campaign war chest to run for city council, or actually in this case, how much candidates had gotten in their war chest to a run for mayor. It turned out that, well, it looked as though Socopolos had given a lot of dough to just about everybody running, which kind of looks like he had his bets covered. So anyway, let's talk about some other potential disasters. Uh, last week, a 19-year-old Sacramento man was visiting Yosemite National Park with a church group, and he got swept over Nevada Falls to his death. The man was apparently hiking the popular mist trail and decided to take a dip in the river. The currently The current reportedly caught him as he went from a rock in the middle of the river to the bank, and I guess just didn't make it. Rangers at the park have urged visitors to be cautious around all water, even though the park received only 50% of its normal snowpack. Rivers in the park continue to run at high levels this time of year. Apparently, the Merced River above Nevada Falls was usually running at about 500 cubic feet per second. Uh, When this accident happened, it was faster, about 650 cubic feet per second, with water temperatures in the low 50s, which is cold do want to quote from some public input, at least in terms of letters sent to the B about this McKinley Village. First from J.R. Flanders of Sacramento, who said, I'm disappointed that the B, which has ably communicated the flood risk in the Sacramento area, dismisses the flood risk associated with the planned development of McKinley Village. This plan goes forward. A levee breach at Sacramento State would present us with two options, both bad. Leave the floodgates on the railroad levees open and flood East Sacramento, Midtown, and the Capitol or close the floodgate and inundate McKinley Village. The model simulations of a flooding event like this indicate a maximum flood stage of 26 feet within three hours on this parcel. It's not accurate to dismiss concerns such as these as simply anti-development. I don't necessarily want the parcel to remain a farm, but the development should not move forward and imperil current and future residents. Also signing off was Julie Murphy, who said Stonebridge Properties, the Sutter Memorial Hospital developer, had dozens of meetings with more than 700 residents regarding its... 20-acre project. The Curtis Park Village developer had 220 community outreach meetings with residents regarding that 72-acre project. The McKinley Village developer has had exactly two meetings with community members since it restarted its 48-acre project in 2013. There was community outreach five years ago, but nothing significant or meaningful in 2013. Considering the scope and possible impacts of this project, is that good enough? Adding, people become NIMBY, not in my backyard, when presented with no real dialogue by developers. It is nice to see that some developers can get it right, while others are hoping to ride on the social and political currency of having Phil Angelides involved in the project. Does that sound like good planning to you? As I say, we will follow this one. All right, we talked some time back about sticker shock at hospitals, how there's a tremendous variation in what things cost in different places. Well, dovetailing with that is an article by Elizabeth Rosenthal in the New York Times talking about how, well, not only is pricing all over the map, turns out the United States leads the world in health spending. Our per capita spending on health care is, well... United States is eight thousand two hundred thirty-three dollars. Next highest on the list, Switzerland is only five thousand two hundred seventy. The Germans come in at twenty-nine hundred. South Korea two thousand and thirty-five. Mexico is just nine hundred and sixteen. The subheadline to the piece notes that high U.S. prices are not reflected in patient care. The article goes on to note that um, a routine colonoscopy done in Long Island cost. $6,385. That was fairly typical. The article cites um, comparable colonoscopy bills at, of $7,500 in uh, New Hampshire, $9,100 in New York. One in North Carolina, they noted, cost 19000 but that did include a surgical procedure of a polyp removal. But uh, the piece notes that the, the final tab to the consumer in each of these cases was $3,500. And even worse, in many other developed countries, a basic colonoscopy costs just a few hundred dollars and certainly well under $1,000. They go on to note that Americans pay on the average about four times as much for a hip replacement as patients in Switzerland or France, and more than three times that as much for a cesarean section as those in New Zealand or Britain. The average price for Nasonex, a common nasal spray for allergies, $108 in the U.S., 21 bucks in spain and the costs of hospital stays here are about triple that in other developing countries why is this happening well it ain't because doctors are getting rich i can tell you that it's because a combination of hmos big pharma and above all else insurance companies run the show in american medicine and it's not being done to benefit either the patient or the practitioner Of course, luckily, the piece notes that some people are starting to fight back. Uh, They note large employers have done so. Three years ago, Safeway realized it was paying between, I love this, between $848 and $5,984 for colonoscopies done in California and could find no link to the quality of service at those extremes. Piece by Rosenthal concludes noting, well, still though, the U.S. healthcare industry is nimble at protecting profits. Anyway, the piece concludes by noting that U.S. healthcare industry is nimble at protecting profits, and that's I think the understatement of the day. We will continue to follow this, along with another reason that healthcare costs are out of control in America. Well, the actions of our friendly faction of attorneys, as we talked about on last week's program, the Consumer Attorneys of California, representing trial lawyers, are paying thousands of dollars to put billboards up. Like one in West Sacramento saying, medical negligence kills. But a 38-year-old law says Mia's life was worth only $250,000. Call your legislator. Piece by Jim Sanders in the Bee notes that Lisa Mass, executive director of Californians Allied for Patient Protection, notes that that cap on pain and suffering was enacted for a good reason, to control out-of-control medical costs. Dictated by what lawyers can extract from the situation. Our recent uh, vice presidential candidate, John Edwards, made quite a name for himself on the East Coast by cherry-picking malpractice cases he could turn into million-dollar settlements, of which he took a very large cut. And the lawyers are really at it this time. If lawmakers don't uh, alter this cap for pain and suffering, which, in my opinion, is a very smart idea, Well, they're going to try and circulate an initiative in 2014. I can tell you this. In my experience, these ambulance chaser lawyers are not interested in the public welfare. I did the disclaimer, right? Yes. Good. All right. Speaking of medicine and the law, we want to cite a piece by Dan Moraine, senior editor for The Bee, talking about medical marijuana exams, how they were being conducted on Skype by... 90 year old physician that would ask a few questions, and next thing you know, you have a cannabis recommendation. Does this show a few flaws in the system? Well, I I suspect it does. On the other hand, we do have to ask at this point why is it that 700,000 people in America are still being arrested for marijuana, generally possession, when it can be demonstrated pretty effectively at this point that this is not exactly a killer drug? Yes, I have no doubt there's some hanky-panky with these uh, medical uh, cannabis recommendations being given out. And that in some cases, the medical need is probably not there. And yes, shock and awe. Apparently, some people are getting this so they can enjoy marijuana recreationally. This is really something we want to devote a lot of police resources to. I don't think so. And speaking of effective drugs, article by Barry Meyer in the New York Times notes that, uh, well, people who specialize in the control of infectious disease are pretty nervous about the current state of our uh, antibiotic resistance. We've talked about this a lot on this program and have taken the stand that one of the most insane things we do, both in food production and veterinary medicine, is to put massive quantities of antibiotics into animal feed as a growth factor because for somewhat unclear reasons, it makes animals put meat on their bones that much more effectively. It's not being done because they have diseases they're treating. It's because it kills the bacteria in their gut that seems to make more nutrients available for the animal. This also is creating a problem with antibiotic resistance, which is bad to begin with. So one solution they're pushing is to just okay, much more rapidly, new antibiotics to get them on the market. This, of course, is a twin edged sword. Peace notes that annually tens of thousands of Americans die from infections largely acquired in hospitals that are resistant to antibiotics. The true uh, punchline of this piece comes late in the article by Mr. Meyer, noting that um, pharmaceutical companies have frequently chosen to put their resources in developing drugs with bigger payoffs than antibiotics. They don't want you taking something you're going to start to take take for a week or so, and then quit. They want you to take something every day for the rest of your life. But, uh, you know, there's caution in this tale. The FDA, after a scandal several years ago involving an antibiotic called KTEC, which the FDA approved on the basis of fraudulent data, was subsequently linked to severe liver damage. So it's been a little more cautious in approving new drugs, according to infectious disease experts. And last week, uh, speaking of the FDA and what's being described as a highly unusual move, the Food and Drug Administration is reopening the case on Avandia. Three years ago, in one of the more notable drug safety scandals in 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 recent history, that diabetes drug was all but banned from United States use after researchers found that thousands of people had heart problems after taking it. Today is considered the drug of last resort for diabetics who are so sick that a heart attack is worth the risk. In spite of all this, GlaxoSmithKline is trying to get the limits on the drug's use lifted. After all, Avandia was once a top seller, reaching more than $3 billion in sales in 2006 before the controversy. Critics of this, like Cleveland Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Nissen, say it's far too dangerous to use in diabetic treatment. Boy, one more thing we got to watch. All right, we better lighten the mood considerably, and I think we're going to do so in segment three. But we need to take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for funner stuff.